0: Hello to 2019 and this year's first podcast of Science Fiction Double Feature. I've been on a bit of a break finishing my PhD, but now that's done, we'll be starting the year by talking to Martha Wells, author of The Murderbot Diaries, and also me? I'll explain later. Systems read in the following novellas take place in a future where commercial interest in space dominates all other concerns. Those exploring planets or setting up a mining colony have corporate supplied ships, materials, and bots. Murderbot, who is one of these bots, has broken its governorship and basically can do what it wants. However, it has to keep this all a secret. And so, what does Murderbot want to do with its time? Well, it wants to mostly watch a serial show called Sanctuary Moon. But occasionally, it has to save some squishy humans from bad company actions. Nothing I can say can do justice to how wonderful these books are, but I'll stop gushing and hand over to Martha Wells. Your primary work has been in fantasy novels, uh, though you've written some sci fi in kind of existing universes. Uh, have you always wanted to write your own science fiction series free of kind of already established universes?
1: Uh, yes, I uh, read. I've always read a ton of science fiction and really enjoyed it. And when I was much younger and in, in uh, high school and college and kind of trying to write for the first times, I, I did try to write science fiction. Um, I'm not actually certain how I ended up in fantasy. I just always liked them both. It, to me, it's not that unusual to switch from one to the other. I expect to switch back to fantasy in probably in the next book or so.
0: The thing that drew me into All Systems Red immediately was the character of Murderbot itself. Where, How did that character develop? How did you think of that idea?
1: Uh, I'm not really sure. I was working on it when, well, I was working on the end of uh, The Harbors of the Sun, which was the last book in the Books of the Raxura series. And it was a long book and a lot of work. Towards the end, um, I just got this idea kind of out of nowhere for a scene between two people, and that was the scene in All Systems Red where Dr. Mensah knocks on the cubicle and talks to Murderbot. And it was just kind of an interesting thing, and I was trying to figure out, okay, well, this is this feels like a science fiction story. What would be happening here? And I kind of constructed it from there. And the character kind of grew out of the situation. I realized I wanted it to be a story about a person who was considered not a person by most of the other people in the story who was a security agent, basically, and who was actually free of this control of this governor module, but had to conceal it to in order to stay that way, and was going to have to expose what it had done that it was free in order to save the people it was it was tasked with guarding. And so originally, it was going to be a short story, and it's going to have a kind of a depressing ending. And then um, I started realizing I needed more length and it really needed to be a novella. And I got so engaged with the character, you know, I I decided I didn't want to have the depressing ending.
0: I found all three books uh, so far just really, really funny. And like the awkwardness of the situation and, and even the constant references to Sanctuary Moon, which I also really enjoyed. Did you intentionally set out to do that or did the humor evolve from the character and kind of the situations Murderbot finds itself in?
1: The humor kind of evolved from the character. And I'd also been thinking about uh, I didn't want to write an AI because it seems like there's a lot of AI stories where the first where it, the AI either wants to be human or it wants to kill all the humans. And I didn't want to go either direction. And so, I, you know, what would you do if you um, had unlimited access to all these all this basically internet, and you could get anything you wanted. And, and it's like, well, I would get all the TV shows and sit there and watch them if I didn't have anything else to do. And so I thought, well, that would be an interesting thing for an AI, an AI to want to do. And the character kind of evolved from that. A little bit later, in, uh, I think it's in the, the, the fourth story that's coming out in October, it gets into how it actually used the shows it was watching to kind of create, a reality for itself and kind of develop its personality more.
0: Given that you've written like quite long, full-length novels, and this is a novella, does the format of how you think a story should go in, so a novella versus a novel, do you change the, the way you approach writing that? Or is it the same no matter what you're writing, a long
1: fantasy novel or a, or a short novella? I've kind of always been really good with uh, deciding what length something's going to be and writing to that length. I guess it comes from reading a lot of different different stuff from the time I was, you know, barely able to read. But um, I kind of know, okay, I want this to be thirty thousand words, and so I know how many subplots I need versus a novel when they need to be cut off, uh, when they need things need to start coming to a conclusion. It's not really that different. You just kind of have to realize that, you know, there's only so much you can need. And actually, I started out when I was even going to novella length. All systems read. Uh, it was gonna be too short, so I actually added some scenes to kind of give it the, the mystery plot more detail. So yeah, it's not really it's not really different. It's just kind of a matter of knowing what length you're writing to and how the how the pacing should work.
0: Well I, I quite like the novellas just I, I read a lot of kind of, you know, long long novels as well. And that they're just such lovely short, compact stories where there is like a thing going on and the mission had to be solved. Did you always env- envision the kind of multiple little plot points i guess not plot points but kind of short missions that the novella provided or did that evolve after the first one?
1: That evolved after the first one because when originally when i sold it i thought i was just it was just going to be that one um, and then the uh tour.com asked for two and so uh, which was which was nice because i didn't get to, got to continue the story and um, and I just, after the second one, I really wanted to keep going. So I did the, I, I started on the other two. Yeah, I didn't really, when I wrote it, I thought it would just be a one-off. And it was kind of meant to be a standalone story. I'm glad there were more. <laughs> <laughs> well, me too. I enjoyed, I enjoyed writing them. In both the
0: sequels, so an Artificial Condition and Rogue Protocol, we get... Uh, this glimpse into this wider universe that Murderbot uh, exists in. Uh, did you have to do any research to make, you know, the stations or the mining colonies or even the structure of how the company operates believable?
1: No. Um, one thing a lot of people haven't commented on is the company is actually an evil insurance company. I, like most people my age, I have a lot of experience dealing with evil insurance companies. So I didn't really have to do that much research. I did I did bits and pieces um, I tend to do research. I don't tend to do research before the story usually, especially when it's something short. I tend to start writing, and then when I hit something I need to look up, I go, I go and, and research that. So I'm I'm using my time better. But a lot of it came from just uh, years of a, you know of reading science fiction, and especially you know the '70s and '80s science fiction I'm most familiar with, and kind of developing my own world from that.
0: And I read Artificial Condition and Rogue Protocol, one right after the other. Uh, So what I picked up on was the contrast between the two other new bots in the series, Art, I won't give away the joke, and Miki. Um, They made really good foils for Murderbot. Did their personalities emerge first or or did the kind of functional nature, the type of bot they were, kind of propel the development of
1: of the novels? I think it was the the functional nature. Uh, Art actually came up when I was first writing Artificial Condition. It was set further away from the first story. And um, I kind of realized Murderbot would need to physically change itself to be able to pass among humans and kind of do what I, what I wanted the story go where the story wanted to go. And I had this kind of throwaway paragraph about meeting this uh, research transport and, and getting these changes done. And then kind of realized, you know, that's the story. That's the story I need to be writing. And when I started working on that, arts personality really came out. And then with Mickey, it was, um, Originally, Mickey was not that big a character. It was just I think a murder bot was actually going to completely take it over and just kind of be that figure moving among these other characters and It's like when Mickey started to talk, I just thought this could be a lot of fun, and I just kind of went with that and and let it develop.
0: I enjoyed them both. they were delightful. I think art maybe slightly more.
1: Thank you. I had a lot of fun, especially I had a lot of fun with rogue protocol they were they were kind of they were both kind of difficult to write uh with because there's so much. There's so much action going on with the mystery plots and everything, but um, it was a lot of fun.
0: And so in all three novellas, Murderbot is is quite disinterested, I'd say, in human affairs and just kind of gets on with it in, in minimalistic kind of effort possible. But at times it can't help to do good and save uh, some squishy humans uh, while investigating its own past. Is this something that's further explored in the fourth novella or is it just kind of the
1: consequence of being a bot. I think it's, it's definitely further explored in the fourth novella. I don't want to say too much, but um, it does end up getting back to where it kind of, where it started from with the, with the human characters it first met. I think a lot of it's in my head, a lot of its explorations in artificial condition and, and rogue protocol is kind of it learning. Can it actually work with humans on an equal basis? Is that actually possible? And kind of exploring that notion for itself.
0: So, Our Systems Red has been nominated for a Hugo. Uh, was that a surprise, a thrill,
1: scary? It was, it was a big surprise and a thrill because I had, um, it's also nominated for a Nebula and it won a, um, an Alex Award, which is from the American Library Association. And uh, I was nominated for the Philip K. Dick Award. So, I was definitely not expecting all that. I think I was kind of hopeful, um, especially it got such a good reception and when it and it's it seemed to be popular, and so that does make you hopeful about awards. But um, I I wasn't really expecting the Yugo, and I was certainly I was I was hopeful, but not but not really expecting anything like that to happen. I was also very surprised that Books of the Rakshasa got nominated for uh, the best series Yugo, So that was just such a, a great thrill and an honor. I'm so happy about that. Have you been nominated before? Is this kind of all coming at a rush? It's coming at a rush. I've been—I was the Death of the Necromancer, which came out in um, nineteen ninety-eight, was nominated for a best uh, novel Hugo, but that was my last, the last major award uh, ballot I was on. And this has all been really exciting. It's kind of feast or famine. It's either nothing or everything comes at once. I guess.
0: And it, it's quite interesting. Like you've said, I've read, I have read a lot of AI books this year. I think Autonomous Speak, I think, was recently. It's all kind of AI-focused. Is it just an AI time, or do you think just the kind of humor and, and good nature of a robot not trying to kill
1: everybody has kind of captured everyone's attention? Uh, I, think it's, I think it's just kind of an AI time. There's another, there's a short story that's nominated, I think, for the Ego and the Nebula, Fandom for Robots, I think is what it uh, was in Uncanny. I think that was after, yeah, that was after um, uh, All Systems Red came out, but um, then I read that, and it's kind of in a similar vein. The evil AI thing has been popular in popular culture for quite a while, and I think kind of people are getting away from that and exploring different ways different ways to look at it.
0: All three novellas, like, they have all their kind of individual missions to them. They have a, a little bit of a thematic thread throughout, which I imagine we'll get to in the fourth one as well. Do you imagine anything beyond the fourth one or do you think this is self-contained and, and you're going to leave Murderbot to
1: Sanctuary Maroon after this? I think I, I would like to write some more. I've been playing with an idea for um, Murderbot and Art getting back together and having to do something, uh, go on an adventure for some reason, because I just I, I love Art's character and I, it's a lot of fun to write. So I'm not really sure yet. The past few months I've been working on Return to Dominaria. So, um, and that's all finished with now. So I finally kind of have a chance to get back and and figure out what I'm actually going to write next. So I've been looking at that. Oh, one thing about them being, um, kind of a different theme, a friend of mine pointed out that the first one is very kind of classic sci-fi adventure, but the second one has more of a noir feel. And so for Rogue Protocolist, I was, I kind of took that idea and was trying to make it a bit more horror, you know, you know, kind of alien-esque horror. I'm not sure if the the fourth one has a theme like that, though. I think it's kind of the, I think it kind of harks back a bit to All Systems Red.
0: So now that you've kind of fully gone into sci-fi, aside from from more Murderbot, do you have ideas for other sci-fi? Do you you want to pursue more of
1: that as well as your, you know, fantasy writing? I don't know. I've always really kind of liked uh, things that combine science fiction and fantasy, because that's what I was reading. There was there was a lot more of that in the early 70s when I was really uh, first getting into science fiction and fantasy. So I kind of like to do more of that, that kind of like things like Farscape, which was ostensibly science fiction, but had a lot of fantasy feel to it in the way that, that the characters and the situations they got into – I did a bit of that in Books of the Raxura, which is labeled as fantasy, but it's it's all alien characters. It does have a more it has have a bit of a science fiction feel. So I kinda I think I'd kinda like to explore in that direction more.
0: Uh and you've mentioned already that uh you've read lots of sci fi, uh, and read lots of fantasy I presume as well. What uh sci fi and fantasy are you reading now that you would recommend to everyone?
1: Uh, well, N.K. Jemison. I've been really enjoying uh, her books, and particularly this last trilogy that ended with *The Stone Sky*. That was really excellent, and I think that was one that really took fantasy to a different level. That blended it a bit with science fiction, science fictional concepts. I have really liked uh, *The Tiger's Daughter*. It's K. Arsenault, Arsenault Rivera. I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce her middle name. I love that book. It's an it's a basically one volume epic fantasy. It's just been one of my favorite years uh, reads of the year. What else? Jade City by Fonda Lee. I really enjoyed. It's just gone out of my head. The one you mentioned, Autonomous. Yeah, that was that was really good too. Oh, Anne Leckie's new book, Providence. I really enjoyed that. Wanting to read um, An Unkindness of Ghosts by River Solomon. That that looked really interesting.
0: Anne Leckie, amusingly, was the person who, who recommended uh, Our Systems Red. So that's why <laughs> I
1: originally read your novella. I was really happy about that when she recommended that I think that helped it a lot but more people find it well those are all the questions I had thank you
0: very much for uh, giving me some time to talk about your novels your novellas I can't even
1: like pronounce it <laughs> Oh well thank you I really enjoyed the, the conversation
0: So it turns out that it's really difficult to get anyone to talk about space law. Perhaps their fees are astronomical. I'm sorry for that pun, but at the same time, not really that sorry. So instead of delaying this podcast any longer, I'm going to do my best to give a potted history of where these laws come from and what's in store for the future of space law. According to the United Nations Office for Outer Space Affairs, which has a real website and everything, Space law can be described as the body of law governing space-related activities. Space law, much like general international law, comprises a variety of international agreements, treaties, conventions, and United Nations General Assembly resolutions, as well as rules and regulations of international organizations. There are five international laws which have been developed through the United Nations, which form the main body of space law. These treaties also sound like a whole lot of fun. The 1967 Treaty on Principles Governing the Activities of States in the Exploration and Use of Outer Space, including the Moon and Other Celestial Bodies. The 1968 Agreement on the Rescue of Astronauts, the Return of Astronauts, and the Return of Objects Launched into Outer Space. The 1972 Convention on the International Liability for Damage Caused by Space Objects. That sounds like space insurance the 1975 Convention on Registration of Objects Launched into Outer Space, and the 1979 Agreement Governing the Activities of States on the Moon and Other Celestial Bodies. Alongside these treaties are other declarations, such as the Declaration of Legal Principles Governing the Activities of States in the Exploration and Uses of Outer Space, 1963, which is basically a declaration that space exploration should be done with good intentions and no one country can claim a part of space or celestial body. This came under scrutiny with the Bogota Declaration of 1976. Basically, equatorial countries such as Colombia, Ecuador and several others declared that geostationary orbits were a natural resource and claimed control over this resource. However, international law was not on these countries' side. The first discussions about vertical limits and sovereignty had already been held in 1910, Though the Outer Space Treaty in 1967 never defined what outer space actually was, the general consensus was that things in orbit were definitely in outer space, so the declaration failed as it was incompatible with the treaty. And another small problem was that the signatories had no way of enforcing their declaration, so instead it's just become an interesting footnote in space history. Aside from the canon of space law, countries that have an interest and capability in space exploration or exploitation have national legislation that governs how the country manages its access and conduct in space. One such piece of legislation is the UK's Outer Space Act. Unsurprisingly, the act governs things like launching things into space and how to operate them. However, while declarations and international treaties are all well and good, there's still a lot of stuff that's quite uncertain. While the EU has attempted to create a code of conduct for outer space activities, according to James O'Malley in the article Rising Nationalism Will Change the Politics of Space, China refused to sign it, with the inference being that it would infringe on what the superpower might want to do in the future. Alongside this, China destroyed a weather satellite with a missile, demonstrating the potential to destroy infrastructure in space. Dr. Cassandra Sear, executive director at the McGill Institute for Air and Space Law, commented on an article in the BBC that space could be a new battlefield, given that so much of our daily lives now depend on satellites. As China has already demonstrated, space infrastructure could easily become a target in a future conflict. Despite that sounding closer to the world in Martha Wells' novellas, militarization might lead to international norms, just like we have in war, which might make it less scary than it all seems right now. As well, space law is part of the wider landscape of international law, which already has established a whole range of norms that countries already adhere to. However, there are other problems with the current body of law, according to Dr. Jill Stewart, an expert in the politics, ethics, and law of outer space exploration and exploitation at the London School of Economics. One of the main issues is that it's all terribly out of date. For example, most of the space law relates to countries, leaving quite a large loophole for companies to exploit. In an article for The Conversation, they mention one company selling plots of land on the moon, with the company's website proudly proclaiming that they've sold over 300 million acres on the moon since 1980. As well, when the first treaties were developed, space exploration was a competition, a prestige prize between two superpowers. Now there's a growing focus by commercial entities on the potential exploitation of resources, such as asteroids. Private companies also launch commercial satellites. There's a recent case of Swarm Technologies, who illegally launched and deployed satellites from a commercial Indian satellite launch vehicle. They had already been denied a license as the satellites were too small for the U.S. Air Force to track. In the end, the company was fined and told to come up with a five-year compliance plan. Commercial spaceflight was also not considered in the original treaties, which has left some worrying ambiguity in the law. As Dr. Stewart explained in The Independent, if a commercial spaceflight takes off from the US and something goes wrong, who's to blame, the country or the corporation? Or alternatively, if someone mines an asteroid, do the resources belong to the country or the company? And what about the International Space Station? Currently, each country's laws apply in the bit it owns. So if an astronaut committed a crime on the ISS, the law applied would be dependent on where the crime was committed. Even more mind-boggling to contemplate is that the European states all share jurisdiction over the ESA Columbus Laboratory. Luckily, it seems that the people they send up there are all pretty law-abiding, as far as we know anyway, and we don't really have to worry about that quite yet. But what if there was an independent private space station? Would any law apply there at all? We're back to the ambiguity in the current law applying to the countries and not companies once again. So what's to be done? According to the Financial Times, updating space law for the 21st century wouldn't require a complete overhaul of the current international treaties to make things more workable. Rather, a governance framework could be adopted by countries with the capability to launch objects or people into space. There is one currently being worked on by the International Institute of Air and Space Law in the Netherlands, which again! is a real thing, with a website and researchers and everything. Jeez, why don't they tell you that space law is a real legit thing when you're in high school? Why do they have such fun sci-fi names? The group published a paper entitled Draft Building Blocks for the Development of an International Framework on Space Resource Activities in September 2017, which you can read online. Links for that and all the articles mentioned in this podcast will be available in the show notes. This document sets out that an international framework should create, quote, an enabling environment for space resource activities, and that it should benefit all countries and humankind. To do this, the framework should, one, identify and define the relationship of space resource activities with existing international space law, including the provisions of the United Nations Treaties on Outer Space. Two, propose recommendations for the consideration of states for the application or development of domestic frameworks. Three, propose recommendations for the consideration of intergovernmental organizations for the application or development of internal frameworks. And finally, promote the identification of best practices by states, intergovernmental organizations, and non-governmental entities. It has some other sensible provisions, such as making sure that the regulations are incremental and develop as technologies evolve rather than just speculate. As well, have consistency not just between domestic legislation, but also between intergovernmental organizations. And finally, provide legal certainty for entities operating in space and promote the orderly and safe utilization of space resources. If all this space law chat floats about, the Working Group even has a newsletter you can subscribe to. The latest meeting was in November 2018, so active work is continuing. Of course, this now seems even more pressing than ever, with the announcement of China landing a lander on the moon. Maybe it'll give more impetus to the working group and all those space lawyers, highlighting the current issues with space law. In the meantime, if you're thinking of a future career, maybe think about becoming a space lawyer. You can boldly go where no lawyer has gone before. I mean, I want to be sorry, but it's just so hard. I love terrible jokes. Anyway, thanks to Martha Wells for taking time to talk to me about the very, very delightful Murderbot Diaries. All four books are available and the internet tells me that there's now a hardcover version of All System Red. So if you have some leftover Christmas cash and haven't yet encountered Murderbot, you definitely should make its acquaintance. Remember, the science fiction of the future depends on the science fiction we read today. So read wisely. Thanks for listening.